What's the difference between, since you have lived in the UK, what's the difference between banter and trolling? Trolling is more like a roast. This is my definition. Trolling is more like making fun of someone or something. That's banter as well. No, banter is just like shooting the shit. Banter. I would have to say, I think that you failed in defining that. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Makin, which is original storytelling at its purest through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really, we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. If you like what you hear and want to help us keep going, you can support us on patreon.com slash Let's get into it. Maybe no one bantered with you because... Because you have to... Because I'm too North American. Or maybe because they... Too North American for the banter. They weren't comfortable enough to know whether you would get it or not. Because bantering is like low-key trolling. But is it at you? Yeah. I'm trying to understand this as well. Well, Well, I I can can pick up banter when I... Okay, anyways. But we should just get someone who's actually English on the podcast and then we can ask them. I'm searching difference between banter and trolling. Is there an answer for that? The top result is from footyroom.co. Okay, that sounds believable. Okay, and (laughs) this user, Marcus2011, asks, I think we need to come to agreement when banter turns into trolling. I will give my opinion, just like to see yours. And then the top comment says, well, for me, there is not much similarity between them. I think I can differentiate pretty well when it is one or the other but it mainly has to do with the intention the user has toward what he is saying. But he doesn't specify what intention, but this is the top comment. I would okay, say. Okay, second comment. Banter is meant to be funny or make the one bantered smile. Humor stuff with some truth on it. Trolling is meant to annoy, to confuse, to say a point you don't even believe in it. Pointless stuff just for hating or See, frustration. I, I think that- That's a pretty good description. I think that North Americans look at trolling. It could be funny too, though. I feel like the nuance is so slight. Anyways, here. this is what we do. We talk about stuff we don't really understand and try to make sense of it. Let's move on. Okay. Well, I feel like your question about banter trolling can go into your subject because of just geographic reasons. That's the connection. All right. Let's do it. All right. My topic this week is Hollywood's new multi-million dollar sports investment vehicle. How boring of a name is that? It's pretty boring. Can you jazz it up? Uh, If I was to change the title, um, two dudes from Hollywood want to buy a soccer team for content. Pretty good. Is that good? That was pretty good. All right. (laughs) All right. So the story emanated from Huddle Up, which Scott actually sends me Huddle Up articles every once in a while they're sort of this intersection of sports and business and at the time of this story there were talks of ryan reynolds of deadpool and others other various movies you would know he's probably most well known for deadpool and rob and being married to blake lively and i don't even know what that is and rob mcgillney yes am i saying that right yes nice first try of it's always sunny in philadelphia what show is that because i don't know Wait, seriously? I don't know. Oh, it's so good. It's the show where, have you ever seen those black title cards with like the white cursive font that says the gang, et cetera? No. Okay. Anyways. So Rob McElhenney is actually the like head writer of this show as well. And he's he an actor? Oh, yeah, he's he he's actor in. and writer. It's been like seven or eight years running also as Danny DeVito in it. I feel like you would like it though. It's so it's seven years. I'm not going to get into it. No, but it's like it's a crass, lighthearted show. And I just looked it up and I am wrong. It is now on season 15. I'm not going to catch up. No, you're not. But it is genuinely very funny. And it follows five extremely unlikable people. Anyway, this is not the point. Um, All right. Anyways. Ryan Reynolds, Rob McElney. 
They want to. Yes, they're trying to buy Wrexham AFC. I'm like 99% certain. I actually think, actually, no, I'm going to downgrade that to 65% certain because. 65% certain what? That it's. That it's confirmed? Wrexham. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm going to downgrade my rating from 99% to 65% because since it's the Welsh club, it might not actually be Wrexham. Okay. We don't know. Someone write Uh, in. Anyways, so Wrexham AFC is a club that's owned by the Wrexham Supporters Trust. So it's a fan-controlled nonprofit that owns the club, and they've owned this club since 2011. So this club is actually, in terms of performance, nothing amazing. They sit in the fifth tier of English football, uh, known as the National League. But this club has a lot of pedigree. They've been around since 1864, which is actually older than Canada. Oh, that's crazy, right? You're right. That is crazy. That's crazy. The reason why is because like Ryan Reynolds Canadian. So I was like, oh, that's kind of weird. Like 1864 is a long ass time. That's pretty funny. Yeah. Cool. Uh, But since the stories broke or since the story took place, it's now official. Reynolds and McElney own Wrexham AFC. Yeah. Uh, So you're probably thinking, how do they do it and why? The why we'll get to shortly. But so Reynolds and McKelney held a video call with the 2000 some owners of Wrexham AFC, and they basically convinced them with the following points. I'm sure there's more, but these were probably the key metrics. They were going to invest 2.6 million US dollars in infrastructure, player wages, and facilities. They would lease the club's stadium for 25 years at 150,000 US dollars a pop so that they wouldn't move the club. And that's one thing that's actually a pretty contentious issue. Sometimes when new owners come in, they want to move it to a more desirable city. And I say desirable on the, like, hey, I want it to be closer to where I want it to be closer, not where the club's original roots are. And then finally, they would increase staff domestically and internationally to, in the words of the article, make it a global force, which I read as like more marketable. Sure. Okay. But beyond that, what do they really want to do? Yeah, they they're not just make, here to win leagues. Yeah, they actually, I don't know if they actually care about soccer that no, much. They do, so. I'm sure they do a little bit. I mean, I think they care about it in the sense that they care about the team. They care about the business upside. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Okay. But not like the sport. Oh, I don't know if they, they might okay, like the whatever. sport. Okay, whatever. Continue. Anyways, they want to make a reality TV show out of it. They want to make a reality TV show out of it. Wait, it's not a reality TV show. Well, it technically is. Because think about your the reality of what's going on of you buying the club. That's reality TV. Okay, I feel like we have a different definition. Okay, let's hear yours. Reality TV is like... Mm, okay, anyways, this is not You see not what I'm saying? Not the point. Sorry, we're getting real sidetracked today. God. They're going to record the whole thing. Yes. They're going to make a series. Yes. And Other people are going to watch process. it. Um, I forgot to mention this part, actually. The way they took over the club was by, you know, earning the, the vote. And 98.6% of the 2,000-some members approved the takeover. Earning the vote of who? Sorry, this is the, this is the, the members. Question. Like basically, they the members that own the club, the trust, need to approve the takeover. Oh, yes. So the goal is to use Wrexham as a media investment vehicle, and it makes a lot of sense to me. Well, does it make a lot of sense? I think it's more about you have to like provide a lay of the land in terms of what is the type of content they're going to create mm-hmm. and what are the different opportunities, mm-hmm. right? One thing that's changed a lot drastically over the course of the last few years is like the power of live sports. Traditionally, live sports have been very lucrative and they have, and they, they cost a lot of money to secure the rights. But I think now so many people are are just like, not to say over live sports, but you saw decreased viewership with the NBA finals, obviously COVID. A lot of things have changed how many people tune into sports. Yeah. Right. And there's something interesting also that's happening with these types of shows. And I say these types because what I anticipate happening with this acquisition and the content to come with it has also been applied in other shows. And they include Last Chance You, which is on Netflix. It's about junior college football. Oh, interesting. It's it's interesting because you don't actually have to love football. It's more of like the humanistic stories behind like, hey, this, this guy was like a top prospect and then he got arrested and now he's trying to like rebuild his career right i mean it's a very traditional kind of story arc yes but applied to sports yeah and then on top of that there's all or nothing with tottenham hotspur that's like a a series that follows tottenham hotspur and uh, jose Mourinho. Uh, hard knocks similar to last chance you i've heard of any of these for sure you have or you haven't i've not yeah hard knocks is 
NFL based. So they pick an NFL team. Okay. And then Sunderland till I die. I have heard of cheer. Have you heard of cheer? I think so. It's cheerleader. Yeah. 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 That was really popular. For yeah. A while. Yeah. So the, the, these all these shows basically follow a team over the course of like a season. Yeah. Right. So this could easily be the inner workings of this Wrexham takeover. Yeah. Basically, every season is literally a season of football, of mm-hmm. soccer. I would also say from a macro perspective, soccer is definitely a growth category in the United States. Right. Amongst yeah. all the sports, like for sure, it's going to get more popular. I think it has a lot of I would say that soccer has a lot of interesting and compelling parts of it that can filter back into uh the current landscape and i think it's there was strong... a lot of excitement about u.s women's soccer last year and megan rapinoe yeah there's that stuff kind of I unfortunate mean, this year kind of losing momentum yeah. but there was like for the first time kind of like a larger audience energy around that yeah i mean there's fashion elements to it yeah, there's a lot true. of other things and i think that the united states is also entering what could be this new golden era of talent which anytime you have really good American players. You mean it, like actual players. soccer talent? Okay. Yeah, like players that actually are interesting and people want to follow who play at big clubs in Europe. That's cool. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of these things coming together. And then also, actually, you know, one like side thing is like there's a show on Apple TV called Ted Lasso. You actually told me about this before. Yeah. So Ted Lasso is another show that aims to bridge European soccer fo- like slash football culture with the North American lens. So basically it's like a an American football, like American football coach who gets hired by a soccer team mm. in the UK, in England. And it just documents his ignorance as kind of this like innocent ignorance. Sure. Of sorts. Um, and before I, I break it down even further, actually some numbers according to Bloomberg about this deal. And they believe that streaming providers would pay about $400,000 per hour of Final Cut content. Uh, and if Wrexham did an eight-part video series, they could bring in, I mean, add up the numbers, 400000 times eight, that's $3.2 million in revenue, which mm-hmm. for a club of this size is probably quite significant, if you think about it. Um, and, you know, at a profit margin of about 25%, the club would make about 800000 not to mention the marketing behind it as well if you're on Netflix. So in a typical year, Rexham loses about $400,000 on revenues of $2.7 million, meaning that $800,000 would immediately make them profitable as a club and without needing to, to improve, yeah. right? Uh, obviously, they would improve, but this is what's, Just I think, Just by really being who they are, yes. essentially, yeah. and allowing themselves to be filmed. Yeah. yeah. I think beyond this, though, this exact process driven type uh i guess content series i think is really interesting because i think it happens actually quite a bit it manifests itself in different industries i would say like rupaul's drag race in some ways shows the process behind like doing like choreographing building a costume etc like i think this type of of content actually has a lot of legs i mean i think it's a little bit different from those shows you know once you bring in rupaul it comes to mind a lot of the competitive type shows that are like you know great british bake-off and Mm -hmm. back in the day what was that show called god they filmed it at my alma mater i've literally forgotten oh project runway yeah okay i was in a different one so like those kinds of shows have been around a minute i feel like this is a little bit different in the sense that it's like you said you know it's following one group one team over a period of time and kind of not Reality in the sense of RuPaul's is more orchestrated. Yeah. 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 Than this. Yeah. I feel like. But and, and I think there's more of an appetite for this kind of content right now. But I think what what is being built here is actually this really interesting flywheel. Right. So what happens is that one, there's instant increased revenue generated by the club, which allows it to build a better base, better facilities better players allows it to level up and let's say hypothetically in in 10 years time they end up playing at the highest league Mm -hmm. in in britain right in the premiership that to me is like this interesting thing because every part of it all funnels back in and while there is like a lot of work that needs to be done but there's actually like the soft power being built up because hey i'm I'm just making this up but like 
maybe there are players that want to go to Wrexham now that would not have considered it because of a celebrity owner, because of the ability to be seen week in, week out. So it changes the whole dynamic, right? Sponsorship comes differently now too. Yeah. Right? And then by virtue of this, what happens is that it might be easier to acquire players and it might also be easier to sell players. And that's one thing that happens a lot in European, I guess, football in general. It's like the the buying and selling of players. Actually, when you talk about process in terms of process being marketable content what i think of is youtubers and a a specific brand of youtubers like casey neistat and l mills that essentially vlog their life and then edit that down into shorter videos but it is just vlogging i guess the process of being who they are and doing what they do and then condensing that Right. And that's what I think about when you think about this bigger picture of processes content. Yeah. And there's something interesting about this, too, because, you know, we discussed this. This is something that also relates back to conversations we've had internally is that, you know, we kind of want to set up this. There's no there's no actual official name, but like a, a creator's fund of sort. Right. Yeah. And beyond just giving someone a chunk of change to go and do something cool. How do you actually leverage that? And and I don't want to say that you the only reason you're doing it is for the content, but I, I do believe that the transparency around process actually is incredibly important because it's documentation that people can take and adapt to their own approach. Yeah. So in our in our context, what that would mean is let's say that uh Sarah is a photographer, right? Can you give Sarah X number of dollars to go and create something and we document the creation from intangible thoughts to the actual process. Yeah. And then create something of, you know, long-term value. Like, hey, it's a magazine, it's a zine or something, and you sell that. So I think that's the thing that I find most interesting is that when you include the process in the overall whole process of how something is created, <laughs> if that makes sense, right? <laughs> If you, when you include into, the process in the process. I, I mean, I'm, 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 one's like lowercase process and one's like all capital That's letters so process. I get it. I think yeah. it's when you include the process in what is outward facing. Yeah. That's how I think about it. Like how the, how the sausage is made. I haven't said that in a minute, but yeah. you kind of I mean, understand I don't like it. that metaphor, but I think, and now I think there's a lot of understanding that the process is also the result yeah you're more like convoluted ways of saying things but essentially i think people realize you know go to go back to rexham that what is interesting or important to pay attention to is not just a trophy or some kind of you know standing in the league but everything that the team does is also an outcome worth paying attention to yep yeah Yeah. i believe in that yeah and I, I I do think that in many ways, when you have this layer of transparency, it allows you to understand better the final product. And I think that's actually really important because without this level of transparency, there's often a lot of personal analysis that might actually be wrong. And why why put someone in this like this wrong silo or this wrong path in terms of understanding something mm. if you yourself can actually write it? from the beginning right as yeah. in like well, i guess it works both ways like you can write it like but you also like write as correct right yeah because i mean this is we've argued about this before but as an artist you need to be like very forthcoming about what you did and why you did it or do you just let people interpret it i personally i'm i'm of the belief that i think that if there should be some sort of guidance because really complex things sometimes just have far too much room for interpretation and Incorrect, incorrect interpretation and misinterpretation could be detrimental. I mean, you can show why you did something and people will still interpret that the way they want to interpret it. And they will still sometimes disagree, mm-hmm. you know, that that was they can, yes. not what I would have done or that wasn't the right decision for someone to make. Even after you let them in on, you know, this is why I did it. These are the decisions I made. Yeah. 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 So even though you might provide what you think is guidance ultimately how someone interprets 
that process and the result is out of your control. You yeah. know, they, they'll read it how they want to read it. Yeah. The one thing I wanted to do and to kind of cap things off was how do you apply this approach towards like different creative pursuits? Mm. So for example, as a fashion designer, mm. showcasing like how and why you designed something and then eventually making it available for sale. I see this a lot on YouTube with photographers who will talk through a roll of film they shot and then you can buy or they or they gift the yeah. the print afterwards. A lot of people right? do live streams now. Yeah. A lot of people will do live streams of them making a piece of work. So that's really direct. You see me actually drawing this thing and then the drawing is for sale. That's mm -hmm. very direct. I've also seen people give live stream talks or like zoom talks about a product which is a little bit after the fact but you are still talking about the process and yeah. maybe you've saved artifacts or notes along the way and then you show them during that moment in time yeah i think there are also other creative ways like some people will write case studies you know which is not kind of along the way but is a, instead of in your portfolio just having this like one polished image you also provide writing or sketches yeah. like the thinking that led you up to that point but i also am concerned as an independent creator that the need to like yeah do it yeah because it just detracts like it's not actually i think it's important you're right because soon you're not a, a photographer you're a documentarian of the process of photography and it's not just a doc. It's not the documentation that I guess concerns me because I think, I think if you were a creator, it's still useful to you to document your work, even if you don't show it to anyone. Like it's useful to have notes, right? That document. Okay, these were the versions that led up to this final thing, and then I can look back at that to know how I got here. But what I think is concerning is when you are broadcasting your documentation, then the process becomes different because you know you have an audience. Yeah. And, I, I actually really like that argument that you've brought up. And I think different creators will respond to that differently. Like some people might find that really positive. They might feel like, oh, I love having people be in on the process and giving me feedback. And that like encourages me to do better work. But I can also easily seeing it go the other way. Mm. You're right. Because everyone acts a little bit differently when the camera's on. Right. Yeah. Same thing could be said about this because. Yeah. That's true. Because when I think back about some of these other shows, I'm sure there is a little bit of coaching. And I mean that not in terms of performance coaching, but also like, hey, it'd be funny if you talked about this or can you talk about that? Yeah. 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 I actually can see how for sports, though, maybe it's not as stressful because you're maybe not as influenced when it comes to your performance on the pitch. Yes. Because there's more of like an objective of this is how we need to play the game yeah. to do well in this game against our competitor. But when it comes to creatives, and especially when you're doing it alone, I think the influence becomes stronger. Yeah. Because there's no objective like this is how I have to execute some kind of play to score my goal, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think seeing this all play out, there's a chance that if the content created is good, there's a chance Wrexham could actually become a really good football club. I think like honestly within, within the next few years, like the man, I have to assume that that's part of the reason why the members voted, not just for the Hollywood stars they and probably the think, documentation, yeah. but also that the money is going to help them actually be a better I, team. I assume they're lifelong Wrexham fans, so they also want... They're not doing it for the financial upside. Mm. They're doing it because they believe that the club will be in a better place. Mm -hmm. One thing also, I'll, I'll leave it on this note, is that uh, there was a story in the BBC that spoke about a, a lifelong Wrexham fan who had £6,000 donated by Rob McElney mm. to adapt his home. So he, Aiden Stott has cerebral palsy, and he's been trying to raise cash to outfit his home so that his family can better take care of him mm. and rob mcelney just came in because he's like oh you know what you're like a lifelong fan it's also my club now right so i think that was a really nice touch that is they had set up a fundraising campaign and then they didn't 
you know, reach out to McElhaney or anything. He just decided to donate to the campaign. So I think that's a really good way of building rapport with your fan base very early. Yeah, it's a good start, isn't it? Yeah. Should we move on? Let's do it. Okay, my subject this week is about friendship as a cornerstone of life. And so Eugene did his usual thing where he picks links of interest and I looked at them and there was also feedback on the Discord. And one of the ones that people picked was this article on Medium by Brianna West called You Are Supposed to Outgrow Some Friendships. Not everyone is here for a lifetime, which as a sentence, I agree with. But actually, The reason I picked this is because your pick reminded me of another article. And this other article is one on The Atlantic written by Raina Cohen. And that one is titled, What if Friendship, Not Marriage, Was at the Center of Life? So these two articles, there's some ways in which they share the same view on friendships and the position friendships should have in our life. And there are some ways where they differ. So I'm just kind of summarize what the two of them are about. So the first one, the Medium article, opens about how much it hurts to lose friends, whether that's a friendship with an individual person or a group of friends. And I'm going to read a quote. Unlike in romantic relationships, where the lines of commitment are often clearly defined, definitely broken, or completely removed, friendship exists in a place that both seems less important than romance, and yet in many cases is far more intimate. When we are rejected by a potential romantic partner, we understand it's part of the game of dating. When we are rejected by a friend or group, we're often more bereft. These are the people with whom we have shared far more honest and authentic pieces of ourselves. The pain from losing a friendship can often run far deeper and last much longer. So then she goes on to describe how friendships break. You know, sometimes you just stop talking to someone, you get busy, your lives change, someone has a baby, you move away, etc. Right. But should those relationships in themselves actually be points of contention? Because those, to me, everything you listed seem like very easy ways in which, you know, it was like no actual deliberate act. It just ended up being a broken relate friendship. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She mainly focuses on friendships that fade. It's not like you had a big argument yeah. and then you like dumped each other as friends. It's more like you become different people over time. And then... You know, someone doesn't put in as much effort or you both don't put in as much effort and then you're not friends the way you used to be. And she basically says, you know, it's okay to be upset about that in our life. Should you though? I feel like no. Okay, well, you jumped ahead to a question I was going to ask you. Anyway, continue. No, it's okay. This is fine to ask you this question because I was going to ask you if this has happened in your life. Yeah, totally. When I moved to Hong Kong, like I had some really good friends that I went to university with. And this was, maybe it's also a byproduct of timing, but even if this move had happened in 2020, I could see us not maintaining that friendship. After Only you moved. because like, first they weren't not very digital savvy people. Like, they just didn't care to, like one of my friends was proud to not own a cell phone until he was like 30 type of people, right? Wow. You know, like well, maybe not 30, but like, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, I right? get you. Like it was such a big deal when they got a cell phone. Right. Right. Um, but were you upset about it as well? For a second. That's like also my I question. Was, I was upset until I realized how life works in a way. And it's not this like moment of enlightenment, but it's just that the reality of situation, two things, right? You're right. Like, as you mentioned, people change, priorities change. And number two, if it was that easy to fall out of friendship, mm. was it that strong of a friendship to begin with? Yes. I think that is a very good point. That's my whole point. I'm like, well, you know what? If you and I have this falling out and like, you know, it, I don't, I don't really care to ever talk to you again. Yeah. Is that really an issue? I don't think so at all. Because I think that what you, what the, the foundation of your friendship at that moment in time was rooted in something you thought was important, but is no longer important. So for me, these friends were people I went to university with. We shared a house together. We all lived together. We were roommates. Yeah. And we partied together. Yeah. And then once that no longer became a primary thread, the the friendship kind of just sort of dissipated. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, okay, you said, is that an issue? I said, I think that 
it's still good to recognize, you know, some loss there, like, you, you know, to reflect on the fact, oh, they were appropriate in university. That doesn't mean that they weren't good friends then. No, of course not. Right. Like it was still valuable for that phase of my life, but it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to reconnect with these friends now. Like my oldest you know, to, friend to relive. That. Yeah. My yeah. oldest friend is not my, not even close to being my best friend. Mm-hmm. Right. But even then it's like this whole like definition of a friend is so like, like you're not collecting friends really. Right. You're just like, it's a friend, someone I know for a long time. Well, see, that's the difference between these two articles because this Medium article talks about friends in a much more casual way. Like you have groups of friends in different phases of your life. And the way she describes them is more like just people you come into contact with. I feel like her definition also includes like coworkers, you know, like coworkers that when you work at the same place, you are friendly with. Mm -hmm. But once you leave the company, you know, those relationships aren't maintained. Yeah. Right. So that's like the degree of friendship. But I actually think the Atlantic article, and I feel like I was more interested in this because it speaks more to the types of friendships I aspire to have. The Atlantic article is about these really significant friendships in which are very rare, you know, where the friend comes first, possibly even before a spouse or comes very close after a spouse, Mm -hmm. essentially, in that it's uniquely deep. And you probably only have like two or three of these in your life. Yeah, It's as opposed to like many people that come in and out. Yeah. Right. And we're still using the word friend to describe the people that you encounter in both like this first article and the second article. Yeah. But it's at like totally different ends yeah. of the spectrum. So I wanted to, since I read a quote from the first article, I wanted to read a quote from the second one, which is written by Raina Cohen, who describes the friendships I'm talking about as friends of their kind sweep into territory typically reserved for romantic partners. They live in houses they purchase together, raise each other's children, use joint credit cards, and hold medical and legal powers of attorney for each other. These friendships have many of the trappings of romantic relationships minus the sex. Despite these friendships' intense devotion, there's no clear category for them. The seemingly obvious one, best friend, strikes many of these committed pairs as a diminishment. Adrift in this conceptual gulf, people reach for analogies. Some liken them to to siblings, others to romantic partners. In the soul-inspiring way that someone being thoughtful about loving you and showing up for you is romantic. So, do you have a friendship like that? Same kind of question as before. I kind of feel like I'm interrogating you. I feel like I'm already talking about my own life. I mean, some of the things are like, I don't need to have that type of bond, like sharing credit cards and whatnot. You don't have a wife, right? So, like... (laughs) kind of yes, changes you have Nicole. but the one thing i think i wonder if this is how do i put this it's like because i think that you could 100 argue that everyone looks at friendships for different use cases and mm-hmm. what i mean by that is like i might be friends with you i don't i don't really like love your banter or anything but i we, we, <laughs> we, we're the only people in our like immediate vicinity that like to play a game together sure. right dragon boat racing whatever right yeah other people are like hey i can find you or you can see my point of view there's like a lot of like different things on the list right yeah or like you challenge me sure right there's a lot of those things and i would say that in general yeah there's different people that fulfill that mm. in a way but i also look at friendship and relationship as a very loose thing in that it can Losing change like it's very dynamic like yeah that's you know true. i had a conversation actually it's really ironic because actually i brought this up with um jason like a, a, an avid listener and we were on Fortnite last night <laughs> just came back from the bar we were all we were both kind of ripped and we were like playing Fortnite, and we were just talking about it and how like as you get older it's harder to develop friendships but i also think that yes it is but it's also not true. I think it's you're subjected okay, to you have less. To qualify that you're subjected to less people because maybe you're you're interacting with less people through and through. Mm-hmm. But your ability to determine if this is a f- person you want to hang out more with is much more optimized, much more refined because exactly. you know whether you're going to have a and I was telling connection yeah, with someone. I was telling them this like oh when I meet someone for the first time like. I'm I'm genuinely interested in somebody mm-hmm. for the for the most part, but then there's always two different avenues something could go right. Like 
you gotta be friends or you could like potentially engage in business together right yeah so i would like i have mental things going on in my mind it's almost like a gauntlet it's like a gauntlet of questions i throw at them and it's not because i am doing this because i want to put them in a bucket this is like for the future record of all listeners if, you, if, if i ever talk Eugene, to you turns out he's running you through a test of questions but it's also you just want to know like because it goes back to my thing like when i meet new people i think the the determinant of whether or not we like hang out on the regular is like is there some sort of like well stimulation obviously but like is it mental stimulation mm-hmm. or like do you is there something that you make me think differently about and that's what i look for in friendships right now or yeah. just in general like people i hang out with people that i people that allow me to think about things or push me to think about things differently and that's just like what i qualify as a good friendship or relationship right so that's why i have this gauntlet of questions right and it's not because i'm i'm trying to find new friends but it's more like i just genuinely like that's what i want out of any sort of relationship well what i was going to say about why it's harder as you get older to develop friendships isn't actually i mean i, I agree with you you know better like who you're going to connect with right i think the challenge is not the part where you come into contact with fewer people but the fact that our time is more limited now than we mm-hmm. were like in high school or university. So I might encounter, and I have been lucky enough to encounter lots of people that I actually feel like I could connect with you deeper, but I'm kind of tapped in terms of like social resources and to like allocate you the time and effort that it takes to like to get a friendship going and deeper is not I don't agree something with that. that I can do with everyone. I don't agree with that though. Which part it, do you not agree with? It goes back to like, like not having of, the time. Yeah, because in in actuality, if it means enough, then something will fall off the edge, right? Like like that person that you might have wings with on every Wednesday for you know the last yeah. you know three years. Like oh, I don't really want to get wings anymore, nor do I want to like hang out because I've this other person's interesting. Like that's I'm not saying you replace them directly, but I just think that by virtue of that your personal psychology like one thing my uh, our producer season said she's like if you procrastinate on something it generally is an indication you don't care enough about that thing and it's true yeah right and season smart woman yeah exactly so like honestly that's just the reality of the situation if i don't care enough then you just fall down the pecking but order what okay but, I, okay i partially agree with you that it's i don't care enough but also it's like the beginning of a relationship takes so much more effort but I, but it goes back to the thing. I think that through life experience, you optimize the friend building steps, like that that foundation. That's oh fuck, it sounds so bad. Do you bad. think so? One hundred percent. What you let you I ask? Don't know. You, you like you just don't you you just don't you just don't have the patience for like these niceties. I think like not saying like you're you're rude to them. I don't mean like niceties. You, I just question whether you can optimize like friendship building. You can't just say that like think this it. is gonna be a significant friendship building hour and therefore it is no but what i'm saying is that the things that you guys will engage in over the course of that one hour like if i'm meeting you for the first time Mm -hmm. this is i'm you know this is all anecdotal because it's my own experience but if i meet someone for the first time we had an argument two nights ago about science versus anecdotes and so but, Eugene's saying that this is anecdotal. But this is, I just want to say, yeah, neither of us are being scientific about friendships right now. <laughs> Keep going. But for example, let's say, you know, I'm 22 years old. I meet you for the first time. I like start talking about just random superficial things. Right now, honestly, if I meet someone, I'll like, I'll jump right to the chase. I'll be like, if they, if there's something interesting, they say like, I work in um, some industry, right? And if I know sufficient, or actually I don't even need to know that much. If I tap them and see how much they want to talk about like the nuance and how deep they want to talk about something, immediately it's okay. like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm down to I'm down to hang out with this person. But if they check, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna go get another drink or whatever, then like, oh, it's like Okay, I believe you in the sense that like our conversation skills are better. And so we're be- better able to use our conversations in a way that deepens relationships. But friendships are still built over time. They are, and but, you have to make memories together. And there's not—I don't think there's like an optimization strategy for that. No, there's. I agree. There's time, but I also think that you know there's certain things like it's it's more direct, right? I think that 
friendship and you guys can't see me because obviously it's a podcast but i'm like drawing in the air of like this squiggly line that generally goes forward like i think that's okay sure if that was meant to go forward then okay right going upwards right but i think that you just optimize and i'm not saying that optimization is something that you seek to do in building friendships or relationships but it's just a byproduct of being more experienced and meeting more people right That's what it is. I'm not saying that like, hey, I only. No, I get it. You're not just like ruthlessly planning out your strategy for each person you meet. It's just like, a, like you said, a byproduct of growing older. Anyway, stepping aside for a second. Another reason I like um, this article from The Atlantic is because Cohen positions these deep friendships as models for how we as a society might expand our conceptions of intimacy and care. And this reminded me of the conversation we had, if you remember, about family and how we can expand our ideas of family to benefit society, essentially. Mm-hmm. Not to say that like the onus for benefiting society therefore lands on our individual friendships, mm-hmm. but she puts together this argument, which I believe in, that it generally does us good to not just focus on finding this perfect romantic partner mm-hmm. and spouse. and like generally good in the sense like not just generally good for our own well-being okay like she says that as well like it's good for us to not just focus on a romantic partner but also good for society because you are sharing the responsibility Mm -hmm. of each other yeah and that's kind of the bigger picture reason why i thought this article was interesting and i think the two kind of have that in common just the fact that friendships deserve more of our thought and time As opposed to, I think there is a lot of focus on how can you be attractive to a romantic partner or what are you looking for? Mm-hmm. I'm not, am I trying to say that that's not as important? I think I am. I The one thing that has changed the most for me in the last few months is, I think the, a few things have changed in terms of how I, I look at relationships and, and friendships and whatnot is, number one, understanding and also relinquishing the need to win. Although there's sometimes where I just like, like for example, we had that argument about the, it was, I think it was semantics more than anything, to be honest, that conversation about science versus anecdotes. Yeah. Long story I'm, I'm, short. I'm slightly nodding my head right now. Yeah. For other long people. story short, I told Cherise that until there's some sort of science to provide credibility for something, anecdotes like don't really hold that much weight. Right. I, and the, the whole thing that kicked this off was, a lot of like what traditional Chinese medicine stuff. It was like few. Like there women, were other people involved in this conversation yeah. as well. So long as we're rehashing this, but women shouldn't drink cold beverages at certain times of the month. Yes, I cannot believe that we are talking about this. But again. I'm just saying, like, wait, the point of this I was is that Eugene science. has learned to relinquish being right. That's it, what you're yeah. trying to get at. But and then secondly, it's also like maybe that maybe we should stop trying to convince each other based off of differences but build off of agreements wow that was extremely catchy was it yeah yeah so just like hey you know what charise and i I think we we have differences like philosophical differences on how to maybe manage or like talk to other people but we also have agreements on what we believe like which is why we're 144 episodes into this right i know it's crazy yeah yeah i mean i think you and I, you talking about friendship is a bit of the whole like preaching to the choir thing. I think also because both of you, you and I are in steady, committed romantic relationships. So I I believe that that allows me at least to think more about my friends. Yeah. Because I do have a partner who is very supportive. And so therefore I don't have to dedicate a lot of energy to yeah. maintaining that relationship. I mean, I'm not saying you don't need any energy, any energy, right? But it's different. Um, and then, can I, I can I just yeah, chime ahead. in? I think when it comes to f- friendships and relationships, one thing I I picture is any friendship or relationship that starts off on the right foot has a significantly large enough overlap in the Venn diagram, and then as you become closer as friends that overlap increases right what overlap like common interests common interests and like just like in in general like vibing with one another okay right and but i also think as people we also change we acquire and the circles might 
shift in terms of their shape. So they're not just like perfect circles, right? And things like, you know, might misalign. They might actually be more overlapping. But I think that's what a healthy friendship looks like mm-hmm. in terms of, I don't know, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of this. I'm, it's like your romantic relationships that I think work in the long run are ones where people grow together. Yeah. And that's what I mean by the growing part where in the Venn diagram, you start off with a sufficiently large overlap to justify being romantic partners, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then as you go, you know, maybe this person's, maybe your partner starts a new career and she's growing and she's adding, you're also doing other things, but ultimately you're still growing the overlap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Dude, we should just start a relationship podcast. Well, it's funny you say that because I don't think we should. I don't. So first of all, I don't think we should, but I was going to mention for people, if they're interested, that there is a really good relationship podcast by Esther Perel. But everything that we mentioned, I think, Regardless of relationship, friendship, business, I think there's all validity behind the way you approach it. I mean, for me anyways, like I don't really partition off certain things. I would say that, yes, maybe a business relationship might have slightly different checks and balances. And maybe friendship and relationship all are a little bit closer to one side. Yeah. I mean, I was, I am of the same opinion, but I think both the Atlantic article and the Medium article kind of speak to this like generalized reader who doesn't think that way. Like they both speak to a generalized reader who has like preconceptions of friendship being a specific type of thing that you approach versus like romantic relationship versus like coworker, you know? So like those different relationships having very clear boundaries in how you behave. Yeah. And both of these authors write their pieces to say like, actually there's like what you're saying, there's a lot of overlap. Someone told me this before. I don't remember who, but one of the best ways to identify a good partner and partner, anything could come before it, like, like, you know, a romantic partner, a business partner is like the, the travel rule. Could you travel with this person for eight hours? Oh yeah. Right. I remember this. I've probably said it before, but it's yeah. like, yeah, I could 100% like, have we traveled before? Yeah, we have. Yeah. We, we did at UC in yeah. well, We've traveled together. It's like it's I think that's like really good indicator because you also see the full gamut of this person. It's not just like, hey, we got we grabbed a coffee, right? Like, yeah. How do they order at a restaurant? How do they how do they treat wait staff? I mean, this is all things that I, I keep in mind, anyways. No, I agree. I think it's the fact of seeing someone in different contexts. What yeah. I wanted to add, and this is kind of my last thing, was Cohen in the Atlantic article also talks about so. To give people some more color, the author goes into more details about key pairs of friends, like actual people that they interviewed to get, you know, details about what these deep friendships look like. And then there are also some really interesting points that I thought, which I won't get into, but about like the history of same-sex friendships. Mm -hmm. So apparently like before kind of the 20th century, same-sex friendships were like more common and were like more close and more encouraged in society versus now where things are kind of geared towards your spouse, like towards a part, like a romantic partner. Mm -hmm. And this is the very interesting part, which is that she kind of concludes with saying that the government also needs, well, this is, she's North American based, but governments should reconsider the way they treat friends versus romantic partners. Or as in there, why do, certain privileges have to be on the basis of oh, having like common law, but for yeah, friends exa- that like are essentially, roommates. Yes, exactly. Like obviously not like all friends, right? But that could you confer rights to someone without basically to someone that you don't have sex with, you know? Because that's kind of what it comes down to, the mm-hmm. marriage part, right? And so this is a quote from the article. She writes, Brake, the philosopher, takes issue not just with cultural norms that elevate romantic relationships above platonic ones, but also with the special status that governments confer on romantic relationships. Where his access to marriage currently hinges on assumed sexual activity, Brake argues that caregiving, which which she says is absolutely crucial to our survival, is a more sensible basis for legal recognition. She proposes that states limit the rights of marriage to only the benefits that support caregiving such as special immigration eligibility and hospital visitation rights. Because sexual attraction is irrelevant to Brake's marriage model, friends would be illegible. And I don't see this really happening, to be honest, but I think it is interesting to think about. And I think it makes a lot of sense in particular for childcare. 
So childcare, mental wellness, a lot of those things actually. Yeah. The the one thing I I do recognize when you and this is, you know, you, you just recently started living with your yeah. partner, right? Yeah. Your financial standing also changes when you have the ability to share in a like a home, share groceries, even share like transportation, like, oh, you you taking the same cab home. Yeah. Like not everything's cut in half, but like, you know, it 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 makes a significant difference. And it is interesting to think like if it was if people knew they could confer similar marital benefits, but as friends, how many more people would do that and what would be the benefit of it? Yeah. Right. Even from a mental standpoint, just like helping out, like, dude, I sometimes I wonder as a how some people when they just live by themselves, like, dude, there's a lot of stuff. Like, if I need a a, a small errand run and I have me busy, Nicole can do it for me. Yeah. Likewise, I can help her. Or if you need packages picked up, yeah. Like it's almost like there's it's not almost like there really is like this financial and potentially even like legal cost to being alone without a partner. And there are ways where governmentally you could alleviate that burden if you didn't just restrict certain rights to mm-hmm. marriages, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I thought that was super interesting. Good place to cap things off. Yeah. Yep. I think that's a good place to wrap up for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash Macon. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.